You're listening to Love in the Time of Kasmosos, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Kasmosos blog about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Our paleo-artist interview in this, the fifth episode, is with the creator of the highly coveted paleo plushies, Rebecca Groom, who, in my opinion, also happens to be one of the kindest persons alive. She will be joining me in conversation later. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art subject this month is Dougal Dixon's The Age of Dinosaurs, a photographic record, published by Sphere Books in 1984, with illustrations by Steve Kirk and Jane Burton. But we open proceedings as usual with a few news items from the paleosphere. Uh, Mark, you've foiled my expectations somewhat in supposing that you had news closer to your heart to share about Tyrannosaur population, but be that as it may, what do you have for us? Uh, well, this was actually published very recently at the time of recording on April the 19th, and it's only the 21st today. So it's actually not a month old, which is an improvement on last time. Incredible. Yeah, it's the geology and taphonomy of a unique Tyrannosaurid bone bear from the Upper Campanian Caparabits formation of the... Let me start again. Nailed it. I shall slow down a tad. Geology and taphonomy of a unique Tyrannosaurid bone bed from the Upper Campanian Caparabits... I'm not sure I'm saying this correctly, actually. Caparabits? Formation of Southern Utah, Implications for Tyrannosauric Gregariousness, and it's by Titus et al. Uh, it's published in PJ, so anyone can actually go and read it. Yes, you want. we love open access. Exactly. Everyone loves open access. Hooray. It's PJ, uh, Life and Environment, and basically they're describing a collection of, obviously, um, of tyrannosaurs found in a uh, quarry in Utah, which, again, it's the... Uh, of the, the Kaiparowitz formation, which I can't say properly. Um, and the, the quarry is known as the Rainbows and Unicorns Quarry. Yay, Rainbows and Unicorns! Yeah, fluffy unicorns Fantastic. and rainbows. Because it's so <laughs> remarkable and they found they found so many different fossils there. Tyrannosaurs, um, they found a Dinosuchus, of all things, like the most complete Dinosuchus anyone's ever found, obviously, because it's very poorly known previously. The Tyrannosaurs, everyone already knows, have they've referred them to uh, Teratophonius, basically just based on uh, what they look like and yeah, their age and <laughs> the formation they're from, from, uh, from, from the same part of the world and at the same time and everything is Teratophonius, they look like Teratophonius. Um, so it seems fair enough. Individuals of different ages uh, and different various bits and pieces, including uh, bits of skull, which are pretty cool. There's a very nice um, figure 10 in the paper, to be specific, is a particularly nice image of a photo of a skull, which with all the um, various parts labelled. Yeah, I saw that. It's a really cool one. Yeah, that's that's so that's a really cool that's a really cool photo in there. Because um, obviously, I'm just going through looking at the pictures. I'm too stupid to um, to understand the rest of it. I'm just looking at the, I'm looking at the pictures. <laughs> I, I, I'm like yeah, picture but the, the point version. was right. This is um, this is an aggregate bone bed of several um, several individuals of of this tyrannosaur Teratophonius. And the point is, we found uh, earlier we found a bone bed of lots of different Albertosauruses and lots of different Dasplitosauruses. So the point is, there might be a pattern here that there might be some degree of gregariousness yes, in these tyrannosaurs. Yes, the author suggests that this is getting beyond a coincidence now. And um, also, there's an extensive analysis in the paper of um, the like how they likely all came to be dead together uh-huh. in a heap. Uh, so and they go through various different scenarios um, and look at the probability based on you know various factors raised to the what they find at the site and the most likely one they think is flooding so a kind of flash flood and they'd be washed 
they they'd be killed in this flood event and the carcasses we washed into a kind of an oxbow lake um, environment, a sort of a quiet environment where they would be deposited. It's always flash floods, isn't it? Yeah. Well, no, no, not always. Um, they say that you can't, they can't rule out completely um, sort of certain other reasons for these fossils being together, but just based on the kind of, uh, also the kind of fossils they found among and the taphonomic analysis, um, then it's likely they were caught up in an event like this. Um, and yeah, also they're saying it's, it's sort of, will be a bit tentatively, it's, it's more evidence towards this idea of um, tyrannosaurs possibly being gregarious. Um, at least some of the time. So obviously all the science news uh, websites and, and newspapers were running headlines like T-Rex hunted in packs! Of course. Yeah, Undeniable just... evidence that T-Rex hunted in packs! And funny enough, obviously T-Rex is not mentioned um, <laughs> because obviously there hasn't been a T-Rex bone bed no. found, <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of anyway. Um, and they cite sort of Despretosaurus, Subbertosaurus um, and a couple of other macrotheropods the large terrible bone bits. Thank you for that, Mark. Uh, Niels, what do you have for us? Yeah, well, um, actually, um, of course, we could fill this entire segment just with Tyrannosaur news, right? There's been uh, (laughs) some analysis on Tyrannosaur populations. Uh, Only just now a paper dropped about Tyrannosaur footprints. News in the world of Tyrannosaur news. I don't know. Let's go to to, uh, sauropods. They found uh, a new Titanosaur in... South America, as you do, because that's, that happens quite frequently. But this one is from uh, Chile, and we don't have many dinosaurs from Chile, so that's nice. Mostly they turn up in uh, Argentina, but this one is from Chile. It's called Araca, Araca which uh, simply means bones, apparently. It's uh, in an uh, ancient native South American language. And uh, it's only a small one. It's only six meters long, but it's uh, expected to be a juvenile but this one is really nice because it comes with a really brilliant piece of paleo art by Mauricio Alvarez. This is a really cool one because it really goes into detail on how uh, sauropod skin looks with the little pebbly scales. Basically, very tiny. it doesn't look like an elephant and it doesn't look like it's come out of uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> it uh, actually looks, actually has pebbly scales, as you said, and um, re- referencing both preserved sauropod skin or sauropod skin impressions and uh, modern-day reptiles that have similar skin. Yeah, he's uh, apparently used uh, a Gila monster as reference. Excellent. That's brilliant. Lovely piece of paleo art by uh, Mauricio Alvarez. I must say I've uh, never heard of him before, but I'm definitely going to check out his work because uh, this is uh, real quality work. Yeah, same. Um, we wanted, I believe, to mention that um, the media, well, the, the 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 outlets reporting about this um, this sauropod have been pretty bad in crediting the artist. Um, it took us a while to find out who it was because the when the primary source cites the museum rather than the artist themselves to begin with, other sources thereafter. Uh, go on to do the same thing so it becomes harder to track who the artist is and it's it's a pretty frustrating uh, and routine thing that we're experiencing um i mean uh, i and many other artists both scientific and and uh in other fields are continually at pains to the point of fatigue <laughs> about um about asking people to properly credit artists please um yeah, this uh, apparently is a uh, is a bit of education that still needs to be instilled. 
But there yeah, it, is. it was hard enough yeah. for us to find out who uh, who made the artwork in the first place. But his name was Mauricio. His his name is Mauricio Alvarez. Go check out his work and support him if you can. Well, I'm a little sad that there aren't any arts-related news for me, as in the previous two episodes. However, I am consoled as the resident hadrosaur champion to be able to mention a new hadrosaur, Boring. which was described earlier this month, uh, Ornatops Incantatus, a very elegant name, if ever there was one. Uh, described by MacDonald, Wolf, Friedman, Fowler and Gates, uh, Ornatops was, deep breath, a Brachylophosaurin sorolophine hadrosaur from the late Cretaceous Menifee Formation of New Mexico. Uh, the paper, which for the present describes only the cranial material, suggests that it was related to and potentially intermediate between Pro-Brachylophosaurus and Brachylophosaurus itself. Uh, we will, of course, include a link to the open access, hooray, paper in the show notes, which you can delve into at leisure. But what I most want to mention is the beautiful reconstruction of this animal by Brian Eng, which accompanies the publication of this paper. Uh, in addition to the overall quite typically brachylophosaurian appearance of the head, this robust, boxy character with a pronounced nasal profile, the reconstruction shows a small, fan-shaped, uh, almost cryolophosaurus-like crest between its eyes. Now, it, it's worth pointing out that this is informed speculation on Brian's part, as we don't actually know the exact shape of the crest, but it is clear that the skull does feature an anchor point for a small crest of some kind, uh, not dissimilar to that of Brachylophosaurus itself, but standing more steeply away from the head. Uh, parasagittal bumps, as they're formally termed in the paper. What also struck me in particular about Brian's reconstruction is uh, the shape of the pupil. Um, have either of you seen this illustration? Ah, here it is, I think. That's a pretty sweet piece of paleo art. It's beautiful. I I mentioned, I pointed out the, the shape of the pupil in particular um, because it, it really did um, strike me as being um, you know, something quite noteworthy because... Uh, the shape of the pupil is is horizontal, but not just uh, a regular horizontal like that of most uh, modern ungulates. It's also lobed, a little like a gecko's. Yeah, it is. Um, Brian himself writes that this was inspired by a recent study that demonstrated a strong connection between ecological niche and pupil shape. Uh, some reptiles, such as geckos, sometimes have lobed irises, which allow light to enter their eyes from multiple points at the same time, even when the iris is contracted down, which would mean that the animal would have a wide field of view whether the head was raised or lowered. It's uh, It really is uh, a lovely bit of speculation and really beautifully executed. Uh, Brian has, has documented his process of reconstruction on both his own blog and uh, his Twitter account. And of course, we'll again be including links to these in the program notes. So, on to our Vintage Dinosaur Art book. Yeah, we got a jingle now. Vintage Dinosaur Art. I must say, Niels, um, your your jingle is, is a work of pure genius. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we'll make an earworm of that for our listeners Vintage yet. Um, but yeah, I was going to say, Mark, um, our book is, is a little unusual in its production, uh, at least uh, for the period in which it was published. Yes, because it combines photography and illustration 
but not in the way we'd expect from the modern day. So it's not the it's it's not it's not the modern day for the Photoshop thing of getting a, a photographic background and uh, slapping some illustrations into it, but rather it's um, yeah it's from 1984 and it does involve putting illustrations into photos, but yeah in a, in a very unusual way um, blending the two together. It's the Age of Dinosaurs of Photographic Records, which was written by Dougal Dixon, you know, for it is he. I think this is the first Dougal Dixon book we've actually done on this, which is amazing. I don't know how we've avoided him so far. I mean, but back in the 80s and 90s, basically, Dougal Dixon would write a dinosaur book every day before breakfast. But uh, in this case, it's just a nice straightforward book about a sort of gallery of uh, different prehistoric animals, not just dinosaurs, I mean, mostly dinosaurs. We've also got marine reptiles and pterosaurs and a few Triassic Things. Plenty of Jurassic stuff in here, actually. Yeah, there is, and even even Permian. I mean, you've got, I mean, obviously Demetrodon's in here because, of course, it is. So yeah, it's even it's even older, but like Paleozoic stuff, which is pretty pretty crazy for a book called The Age of Dinosaurs. <laughs> it's like there's probably possibly too much Paleozoic, but um, never mind. It's cool anyway. Um, so yes, I, I was convinced for a long time, but apparently because I can't read or I don't read the acknowledgements, like a terrible person uh, with the credits. That a lot of the photography in here was of small models, so it's just basically really good model photography, sort of combining photograph backgrounds with little dioramas and models in, and it certainly looks like that in a lot of cases. But no, in fact, the, the models aren't models at all, but they're illustrations by Steve Kirk that have been cleverly sort of woven into these um, these photographs. I mean, presumably some of the photographs do in themselves combine like a little diorama with a, a sort of background that's separate. Um, and then, but then the illustrations put into that. So no, there there are no models in here at all. Even though some of them really look like models. I mean, the um, you can't tell me the consognathus, consognathus. It, it's it's really not entirely clear to me just what Jane Burton exactly did, because Jane Burton is a wildlife photographer, apparently, according to the uh, back text. Steve Kirk did the illustrations. So I'm not exactly sure what Jane Burton's process was of integrating the illustrations with the photographs. Yeah, I'm really interested to know that too. There's a lot of clever retouching involved, um, which again, for the, for the mid-1980s, it's all very impressive. And yeah, it's really obvious in some cases. Like obviously, with so many of them in here, some are going to be better than others. And I mean, like the Zometrodons are really good. Saltopus is really good. Um, I think the there's a Plesiosaur, I think it's Cryptoclidus that's not so good. Um, there's a pteranodon in one that looks like it's a like it's stuck on the page. <laughs> it's just kind of rubbish, but most of them most of them are good. There's more, more good in here than bad, I must say. I, I was just going to mention, as a general note, that all of the illustrations in this book have this wonderfully hazy atmosphere, which um, I'm supposing uh, was a, if not an artifact, then a purposeful uh, result of the combination of illustration and photography uh, in order to get them to blend in well uh, in in the days uh, prior to Photoshop and and all the other digital tools. Again, as we were saying earlier, I have no idea how Jane Burton did this, uh, but this hazy effect that is achieved in in all of the illustrations um, really does actually lend uh, a, a, a wonderfully elegiac feel to all of them. Elegiac. That's a beautiful word. I think so. Um, elegiac. Can you can you explain that a bit more? Um, how, how do you mean? Why do you, do you, do you not agree that that this is the general feeling that is being given by the illustrations? I think he just doesn't know what it means. <laughs> <Shh>. <laughs> no, no, I just need to explain a bit more. What, 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 
what do you mean by that? Well, well that's, that's a very, uh, that's a very moving, a moving celebratory note in all of the illustrations, uh, like a pictorial ode, if you like, to the dinosaurs. Yeah, that is a very evocative, a, a gentle, a sad even atmosphere to all of this. Again, because of all this, this, this haze that is present in all of them, which, uh, again, as I said earlier, I don't think uh, is uh, an accident, but rather is part of the process of combining the illustration and photography, uh, however it was that, that Jane Burton did yeah. this. It's blurring the lines. Yeah. Basically, um, it's, it's obscuring the joins, which is, I mean, some are much more hazy than others. Like you have um, Cyanognathus on page 36, which is just sort of silhouettes in, in the fog. Um, but then you have also things like the saltipus on page 47. Which, yeah, the saltipus. That's really cool. It really is. That, that, yeah, that's a real highlight for me because it really looks like someone was there with a camera trap almost. And they, they, they took a flash photo mm. uh, of this animal. And it looks mm-hmm. quite startled. It's got their prey in its mouth, but it's Yeah, but upright, they've given like it eye shine as well. Yes, that's another, yeah, exactly. That really adds to the realism, that eye shine. And that's obviously just been put into the illustration. But also because the, the lighting of the, the scene and the animal matches up really well in that one. So the animal's been sort of, again, with this flash photography idea of it being completely highlighted against this black background and a few rocks visible underneath. It, it, is, it looks very convincing, um, especially for something that's basically an illustration and maybe like a little diorama photo combined. Um, it looks... It's remarkably convincing. Yeah, and then for the uh, Silurus on page 71, they've basically done it the other way around, right? Because they've drawn the animal yes. in silhouette. Yeah. Yeah, again, looking as though it were photographed at twilight. Indeed. And the fake motion blur in that one. Yes. Uh, which really has to the realism. So the, but on the parts you'd expect to be moving quickly, so the uh, wings of the pterosaur and the feet in particular of the of the dinosaur as it jumps up. Very, a lot of very careful, uh, clever work went into that, which I can really appreciate. Can we, um, can we talk about Tyrannosaurus though? Oh, Just because if, if we must, <laughs> if like we must. The, the actual, the actual artwork, um, again, so obviously it gets two pages to itself because of course, of course, the actual artwork <laughs> is actually good. It's, it's pretty good. Well, it's, it's, it is very early Steve Kirk. He, he did come a long way from, from this. Yeah, yeah, and my main my main problem with this with this spread is not the artwork at all. The artwork is actually pretty nice, uh, as you say. Steve Kirk came. This is early nineteen eighties Steve Kirk. This is a year before the Normanpedia, and this T Rex is a lot less weird than the one that's in the Normanpedia. Um, one thing, it's kind of in a normal posture and just walking along. It does have very fat hips. It's like it's like Burian. Yeah, it does kind of. Um, I mean, you could argue that actually that's almost. It maybe doesn't have a deep enough uh, chest, so maybe it looks a bit unbalanced. But well, that's just again according to yeah, that's probably it. Modern ideas. So yeah, it looks a bit like egg shaped, a bit maybe a bit too egg shaped. Um, but it's not really. It's pretty for the time. It's 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 good. Uh, and again, you have got the helpful fog obscuring all the joints. Um, <laughs> but but makes sense in the context of this image because it's described as being this sort of steaming um, salt lake atmosphere with these flamingo, mm. sorry, flamingo like birds mm-hmm. <laughs> flying past. <laughs> Suspiciously I mean, similar last substitute. time we talked about a heron, now we've got flamingos. We've got flamingos. I think yeah. there's egrets in another one. Yeah, it's not really the <laughs> illustration here that bothers me so much as um, the description text by Dougal Dixon, which basically describes it as being slow, waddling, it can only take one metre steps, it had really thin teeth that would really break off easily. It's like, 
where does thin teeth thing come from? Come it's like from? the exact opposite. How extraordinary. <laughs> what it was actually like. Yeah, yeah it's it, like it, you only say that if you've never seen a Tyrannosaurus skull. Right. Like, okay, this, this was the 1980s. This was the 1980s. So it was hard to come by good references. Not so like it is today. Today you can go online and you can just look up like or you could just order yourself a 3d print of a t-rex tooth or something and see it for yourself well, yeah, surely but surely Dougal dixon would have seen one yeah it seems extraordinary to me yeah you think so i mean that, that that's the thing like this is not an obscure species i mean didn't the nhm have a have a, a t-rex skull replica or something yeah they still do uh, well the, it, uh, back then they had a half t-rex mount on the wall um in the old dinosaur gallery which incorporated like the one bit of T-Rex that they've got, which is like a dentary or something. <laughs> but then the rest of it was just this like replica. Um, and they still have that bit of jaw on display now, um, as far as I'm aware. So yeah, they, they had that there. And, and they have teeth. You can see the teeth for yourself. You go up there, see them in 3D. And it's well known that even then, that the teeth of T-Rex were these big fat, like stabbing bananas, as they've been compared to. Yeah. As big as bananas. <laughs> bananas. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. This text is weird. I don't know where all this has come from. And he, he ditched that whole idea like a few years later. So to you, his credit. To his credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, he's ditched that. So I don't know where it's come from uh, for this about this time. Yeah, I, I must say, though, that um, that Steve Kirk's illustration very helpfully belies this description, actually, because I think, to me, it looks... Obviously, we know uh, the, the period in which it was created, but it looks, to me, uh, much more like an active animal. Uh, much more than uh, Dougal Dixon's description uh, gives it credit for. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it also seems to me uh, like a sort of intermediate uh, between an older T-Rex and a more modern one. It has strange, uh, rotund proportions, perhaps, but but it's it has got this wonderfully horizontal, well, slightly horizontal posture, but um, but but also a, a, an almost comically jutting uh, projection of the neck and head. Um, you know, almost, almost as if it had been broken upwards slightly, um, but but still. I, I was just going to say, you did see that a lot during this period, um, particularly with artists who weren't necessarily on the forefront, you know, so not Mark Hallett or Greg Paul or somebody, but right. artists who were maybe finding their feet or were referring more back to earlier work. You see this kind of intermediate thing with um, mm. basically, as you say, a horizontal body T-Rex with quite, it looks like quite big muscles. It's got quite big thighs. but. Um, but with the head and neck of a more upright old school T-Rex yeah. stuck on top, uh, which, I mean, this this one isn't the worst, I don't think, because I think the worst ones don't take into account the uh, the big sagittal crest on the back of the head, which where the muscles attached. So you just end up with this, and the neck just falling away completely. It's not quite the case here, but yeah, I, I do I, I do see what you're saying. Mm. So um, should we talk about Deinonychus? Because guess what Deinonychus is doing? Um, hmm. is it, Let's see. In peaceful concord, yeah. So this is worth mentioning. It is attacking Tenontosaurus, okay, in in a pack, like they did in the 1980s. But not only it's not only attacking Tenontosaurus in the background, there are two of them fighting each other in the foreground, which is a really nice idea. So you get this um, intraspecific combat. And they're like, I love the way they're flailing at each other. So one of them's got its hand on the other one's face, and they're just kind of lashing out, just flailing. <laughs> they've got their eyes shut. Yes. And that's, that's, that's really cool. I guess because the background, the background scene just become a cliche. But I don't know if it was a cliche in the eighties. Yeah, it was. I mean, even, even by this time, come on. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I, actually, I'm trying to think of the first time I ever ever saw it. Maybe it was becoming a cliche. I mean, Sibic hadn't done his version yet. No. Um, Did Bakker do a version? 
Sorry, Bakker? I don't think he... I don't know if he did. No, it's Bakker. Bakker, because it's Hollands, whatever that is. Well, how did it get, become a cliche in the 1980s, in, in the early 1980s? Or was it only on its way to being a cliche? It was definitely a cliche by the late 1990s, this scene. But Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, maybe it was only on its way to being a cliche at this time. As, again, as the resident hadrosaur champion, uh, it would be remiss of me not to speak of the Lambiosaurus. Ah, gorgeous. Isn't um, it just? Alan's psychedelic Lambiosaurus. Uh, Indeed. (laughs) I mean, the the first instinct would be to describe it as a doe-eyed animal, except that uh, its eyes aren't quite like that of a doe, but more like that of a human's. (laughs) As human eyes. Say it. It has it has a shape of a human eye. It has white sclera visible. I think I think Steve Kirk missed the trick by not giving it huge eyelashes. That would have made it. Uh, well, yeah. it seems to have a suggestion of eyelashes. Um, I mean, it could be skin wrinkles, perhaps, but but it would be so easy to interpret them as eyelashes yeah, like at scales. this point. Yeah. It's the flowers as well. But that that's exactly it. It's just... Pink flowers. Yeah. This, again, combined with the, the atmosphere that we were talking about earlier, um, but with this this uh, human-like expression of the the eyes and even a hint of a smile um, and the, the, the beautiful pink magnolias, um, it, it does um, all lend itself to a, a rather, a rather uh, psychedelic, highly drug adult <laughs> uh, uh, atmosphere uh, for want of a better description <laughs> it's, it's like a surreal valentine's card it, it really know, is if somebody's really into hadrosaurs like really <laughs> you could send them this heaven forfend heaven forfend you send me a, a card of this sort. roses are red violets are blue <laughs> steve kirk's lambiosaurus is lusting after you <laughs> Well, I think I think this is Jane Burton doing most of the work, though, putting it in this in this magnolia field with these these pretty flowers all around. Oh, and the Archaeopteryx on page sixty, which I was always convinced was a model. I'd always believed that to be a model because it looks like a model. It looks like something that's maybe be made out of like with feathers being stuck on, like one of those museum models where they get loads of dead pigeons and stick their feathers on an armature or whatever. <laughs> and obviously, the the lovely kind of artsiness of it with the ginkgos and the lighting, it's pretty. And it's a magpie Archaeopteryx, which was a bit of a cliche about them, but now it's regarded as being quite likely, right? Yeah, indeed. You you very often see it with sort of mallard colours. Yeah, or there was like Sparkle Raptor Archaeopteryx too. Copyright uh, Trish Arnold. But yeah, I, I think I think this is this is one of those times where the concept really works, right? Where the concept of integrating the illustrations with the photography, I think it works best. If they play around with lights and silhouettes a little bit, like they do with the Silurus and the Saltipus, and again with the Archaeopteryx, that's when that's when it really comes to life. That's when it really becomes, in addition to being arty, mm. it also becomes kind of convincing. Yes. Yeah, because you're blurring the edges. It, it, it all just meshes together very nicely. And, and yeah, some of them aren't that great, but most of them are. Most And the best ones do just look like model photography. Um, yeah, the, the Diplodocus as well. I was about to bring that one up. The Diplodocus, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, that, that one's interesting. I, I think they have slightly. I know um, Diplodocus had quite a thin neck, but I think they might have gone a bit far with a noodle neck on that one. But I like the idea a lot um, of looking up at these craning necks, and all, all you see are necks and trees. That's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, but if you're on the ground with a sauropod, and you're trying to photograph it, it's going to be impossible, isn't it? That's yeah. yeah that's what it would look you like. You can never get that entire animal. Uh, uh, on on one photograph, it wouldn't work. 
And I love it when paleo art reflects that. That's the great thing about it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's got a human sort of perspective on it. Exactly. Which contrasts greatly with the apatosaurus on the previous spread. Which yeah, is, uh, but ha- have you ever tried to photograph a mounted sauropod skeleton? It's impossible, unless you're really far off. It's difficult. Yeah, I mean, mm. g- good luck taking a photo of the giraffe titan in Berlin. They're like it on one go. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea is that he's placed you directly into that into that world, into that scene, and I really like that. It's there's something about a lot of the techniques applied in here that because they're aware of, of the limitations of the well, technology available at the time, the techniques of the time, and what the kind of thing they could do because they didn't feel the need to have everything in sharp photo realistic relief um, because right. because they they felt free in this book to have things out of focus and that makes it more convincing because there is no way you, you would go out into the Cretaceous period and approach uh, like a five ton bloody tyrannosaur and just take a photo of it you know and it would be posing nicely for you exactly. if you really wanted to make it look like to immerse people in that then the kind of techniques employed in here where things are a bit blurry and they're a bit out of focus and there's fog and there's you know um and there's lighting that's not necessarily the best <laughs> it was one um that really helps sell it I, I think it's all pulled off really well mostly pulled off well actually there are a few in here that do look like someone's sticker book but mostly it's pulled off very well and I, I really like it. I just want to close um, with something entirely unrelated to paleontology, but which uh, I was reminded by when I looked at the, the illustration of the Pachycephalosaurus. Um, this little bit of nonsense verse from Edward Lear. Um, far and few, far and few are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue and they went to sea in a sieve. A little bit of poetry to go along with your paleo art. Yes, yes. Well, it's the feeling that, that I got from it. Uh, and together with, with what I was talking about earlier, about the, the elegiac atmosphere, um, I also find that there is always a sense of melancholy in, in Edward Lear, even in all his nonsense. Um, and, and to me anyway, it probably doesn't um, doesn't reflect it to, to anybody else. But to me, the... Um, that sense of melancholia uh, of something that you can't can't touch anymore, even though this is what this book is trying to evoke, um, seems to fit to me, that little bit of verse with this Pachycephalosaurus illustration. That's uh, really beautifully put. Thank you. It does. Yeah, actually, that's, and that's a very good point, that, that sense of um, something that you can't touch. Because, and this is something that they make a really big deal of, on, on you know, on the blurb, in the introduction, it's making it feel like you could almost reach out and touch these things, but you'll never be able to. So yes, there is that sense of melancholy there. Exactly. Now, I'm sure that our guest this episode is no stranger to many of our listeners. Rebecca Groom Becks to her friends first breathed fresh air into the paleo art world in 2014 with her highly individual, beautifully made, scientifically accurate soft toys of dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals. Since then, her Paleo Plushies brand has evolved with ever-improving production values and a growing range of creations, plushy and non. 
There are collectors of her work the world over, including members of the Casmosaurus team. And on a personal vanity note, I might add that I also played a small part in one of her creations. More on that later, perhaps. Bex, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Hi there. Thank you for having me um, on your podcast. Uh, not at all. Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, first of all, we ask this of all our guests, but it seems to me a, a prerequisite question. What first got you interested in paleontology? Uh, it's hard because I think I've been interested in paleontology before I can actually remember because mm. I've always really, really liked birds. And yes. my dad said that my third, the third word after mom and dad that I said was bird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my dad, um, he also was the one that would always be like, oh, did you know that birds are dinosaurs? And this was in like... 1993 or something where it wasn't particularly common knowledge I don't think mm -hmm. and yeah. but he'd go look at their feet and look at the way they move they're, they're clearly dinosaurs and I guess it was just I like birds and I, because of that I uh, like dinosaurs and and another big part was Jurassic Park when that came out I was a bit young to actually of watch course. it <laughs> yeah I was a bit young but I had I had all the toys and I loved those as well so yep <laughs> that's basically it excellent yeah I mean it seems to be a, a very similar path um, uh, to to most of, of our guests which would you know stands to reason after all <laughs> so uh so then why plushies I mean self toys of dinosaurs are, are not new in themselves of course but to be truthful without being too impolitic, they're not always the most pleasing of products. What what makes your work so distinctive is that they bring into the plushy world the sensibilities of an informed paleo artist. Now, were plushies a conscious decision to carve a niche in this less attended area, or was it a much more organic development based on your own interests? I'd say it was a more organic development because... Mm -hmm. I started making soft toys and things when I was about 10 years old was when I made the first one myself that I designed. Right. And before then, I'd worked on kits and things with my mom who taught me how to sew and use the sewing machine and stuff. But um, the the drive to make soft toys was that I couldn't ever find a soft toy of the animals that I really liked and I was really passionate about yes. like all sorts of not just extinct animals but I really liked peacocks and various birds and so mm -hmm. the first soft toy I designed myself was a peacock with a tail that wasn't it wasn't displayed it was just um, trailing behind it so it was sort of uh -huh. a, nat a natural looking peacock and my mom sewed that one for me because I must have been like nine or something but um, yeah. I designed that one and then I got into um, Pokemon and I was then again a fan of like the le less popular Pokemon that you couldn't find soft toys of. Right. And so I started making my own when I was about 10 and that eventually when I was in college, I started um, I kind of my interest in paleontology and dinosaurs and things was reignited when I learned about Microraptor and all these feathered dinosaurs that had been discovered. Uh, and, yes, yes, of yeah. course. And I was like, oh, wow, I could make a life-size Microraptor. So that's probably the first one uh, paleo plushie I made, but not an official paleo plushie. It wasn't called that back then. So, right. <laughs> yeah, so gradually, and my current motivation is just to, uh, 
I like to create realistic depictions of animals that you don't often see. So I do a lot yes. of paleo art, but I also do modern animals as well. But just just animals that don't have a lot of representation in a plushy form. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, as as I keep reminding uh, our guests, you know, we are great champions of the well, the great champions of the less championed, shall we say? Um, <laughs> so we, you know, we love we love unconventional paleo art, and uh, plushies are a rarer form of them by themselves. And the fact that you also choose the the less represented animals makes it all the much better and uh, and also if i wasn't you know a, a great supporter of you to begin with i'm even more so now to learn that the peacock Aww. was your first flushy you know, <laughs> that that wins wins all the prizes in my book i have to find it it's in my parents attic somewhere and i'll i'll, I'll have to find him again but he's, he's still well, up that there would be wonderful. excellent yeah. well you, you gave us a wonderful talk as part of the Paleo Art Workshops at TEDZUCON, uh, Tetrapod Zoology Conference, uh, a year or two ago, I think. Um, but could you uh, talk us for our interview through your process? Uh, how do you go about making a paleo plushie? Uh, the typical ones that are the, the paleontological reconstruction uh, ones, I tend to start where you would normally start if you wanted to recreate um, a depiction of an extinct creature where I'd go and look at fossils and find mm -hmm. as many references as I can. So I'd, a big shout out to Scott Hartman's skeletal um, drawings because they are a fantastic resource. Um, yes. I couldn't do what I do without <laughs> them. <laughs> no, no, I think I think that goes for, for all of us paleo artists, actually. Yeah, the real credit. So anyway, I start with um, basically reconstructing it in a 2D format. So because I'm not doing anything fancy pose-wise, it makes it a lot easier to actually reconstruct the creatures because I'm not having to worry about perspective. I'm literally drew drawing like a side-on and then a top-down view. I kind of... Sure. Yeah, and I basically start out with the kind of drawings, like a schematic drawing of the creature, which I then... Um, the best way to describe it is you're trying to make an, a um, box from a very complicated 3D uh -huh. image. It has a lot in common with 3D modeling and unwrapping things in like the video game world and things like that. But a lot of it I do more intuitively where I'm designing the pattern pieces and things myself because I've, I've just kind of learned how to do it over the years and you have to take into account some things that you wouldn't have to if you're making a 3d model that's going to just be viewed on the computer because you've got to think about like this the direction that the fur of the fabric goes in and the the stretch of the fabric mm -hmm. and things like that and the different fabrics have like different um they have they have different properties yeah that's the word i'm looking for <laughs> <laughs> So once I've got this sort of flat, flattened out version of the creature, then um, then I do the, the painting side of things and I'm doing a lot of that on the computer. So that's all done digitally as well. Um, right. So I paint it in, um, I don't actually use Photoshop. But Photoshop like software, you know, <laughs> digital painting software. Uh -huh. There we go. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> to, I don't have to worry so much about 
composition and lighting and shading and all that i'm just focused on like the actual patterns of the mm-hmm. creature which basically making things as plushies allows me to focus on that part of paleo art that i actually really enjoy which is reconstructing the animal and then coloring it in because i of don't course. particularly like doing backgrounds and composition and posing it in certain <laughs> ways and making it look right because then i can just sew it and you can pose it however you want and it looks it's then it's a completed completed object once you've got it printed yes. onto the fabric cut out and sewn and then you've got a thing in front of you and it's done i don't have to worry about backgrounds it's great <laughs> what, yeah one of the best advantages of this uh of this mode of paleo art shall we say this form yes exactly as you say you don't you don't have to worry about all those things i get the design once i've made it i've designed the pattern pieces i've colored them in how i like them and then you have to arrange them onto i usually arrange it onto about a meter of fabric so i can get it printed by the meter and right. that's a fun game yeah. of getting as many pieces as I can onto like this one, uh, one sheet, and make sure they're the right size. And that's it's that's a whole like a big jigsaw piece, a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Is that's takes quite a while to do, and then I get it um, printed um, offsite. There's various um, digital printing, fabric printing companies out there that do this. And, yes. Um, yeah. So I get that. That then turns up within a couple of weeks, usually, and I'm anticipating it because I really want to get on with the project. And it turns up, and I cut all the pieces out, and hopefully, it all fits together. If there's a, um, if it's a new, completely new design, so like a, a, a shape, an animal that I haven't done the shape of before, I will usually do a couple of prototypes before I even start painting it digitally. So I'll have like. Right. Um, yeah a couple of like plain ones knocking around the place but um, if it's something I'm fairly confident in I usually usually can skip the prototyping stage if it's something like um, a pterosaur because I've, I've done quite a few pterosaurs before and know how they're going to come out say um, uh-huh. yeah so um, but if I'm doing something radically different I'll have to do lots of uh, printing and uh, prototyping at home <laughs> Yes. I mean, it, it does sound uh, highly complex. I mean, I mean, I, I think we, we pretty much expect it to be so, but, but even so, uh, listening to you, just the whole, uh, the, the very idea of having to arrange the pieces so that you can make the most out of a piece of fabric is another, another logistical headache in itself, I would imagine. It's, um, it is a bit of a headache because yeah. you've also got to take into account that the direction of the like the pile, the fur direction on the of fabric. Course. So yes. everything has to be pointing not only the, the correct direction, but to try and make it as efficient as possible to fit as many things on the same piece of fabric as, as you can. So <laughs> it's a, I quite yeah. enjoy the challenge. I quite, I, I really do enjoy what I do. So, um, and I think I like the fact that there's so many different processes that go into the one, one finished thing, because I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I'd get bored if it was, all the same thing all the time because this way I can kind of break up 
what I'm doing. And and I suppose after you have your printed fabric and you've cut them out, then it's just a matter of, of sewing them and, and stuffing them up. Or is there... Yes, you sew yeah. them. At, like I, I, I sew them... In, you have to sew them inside out, so when you turn it in the right way, all the seams are of hidden. Of course. Um, like, yes. Because the, the listeners might not be familiar with the, the, the process of like sewing software. So you, you sew it sure. all in the wrong way and make sure you leave a hole so you can turn it in the right way. And mm-hmm. then you do things like you can put you put on eyes. So I've got these safety eyes that have like a push on back so they don't, they don't pull through the fabric. And you do uh-huh. things like... Um, so once it's in the right way, you can then stuff it. And often I'll be doing a lot of what's called like needle sculpting too, where you stitch from one side of the soft toy to the other side and then like pull it in together to sort of like get a bit more definition. Because uh, yes, of course, they would naturally want to sort of fluff out like a pillow. Um, so to sure. keep keep the keep the shape, you can do a, a lot of things with needle sculpting and things like that, and it's it is really rewarding. Um, th- yes. Yeah. I've rec- yeah, I can I can imagine that. <laughs> I've recently been getting some help from my sister, who's been um, she's been sewing some of my less complicated designs. So. Um, and then she sends them to me unstuffed, and then I put the eyes on and um, stuff them and sew them up and things like that. But um, it means right. I've been kind of able to focus more on some new designs and things like that. But yeah, so big big shout out to my sister Sarah for all the work she's been putting in as well. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, she's been doing great. Yes. <laughs> she's more efficient than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I hinted at in, in the introduction, your range has expanded to include other non-plushy toys. You now have ball-jointed figures of a thylacine, of Ichthyosaurus, and Hyenodon, for example. I remember there was an eruption of excitement when you first introduced the thylacine. The first run sold out within mere minutes, I think. <laughs> yeah, that was the case. Um I've still got a, I have a wait list on my website for people who want to be notified when something comes back in stock. And the wait list for the thylacines is gradually getting bigger and bigger to the point that it's, <laughs> it's quite intimidating now. And I've got some printed and I need to paint them. And it's something that I've been like, I need to do that soon. And then I look at the wait list and go, oh no. <laughs> but well, my, my question about the about these uh, board jointed figures is that was was this always part of your plans um you know to to grow your products or or again was it more of a natural progression um it wasn't part of the plan right because i don't really have a plan i'm just kind of doing what i want which is <laughs> probably quite a no. uh, inefficient way of doing it but um it's kind it of sounds whatever, perfectly fair to me <laughs> yeah it's whatever kind of takes my fancy and I've been very lucky that I've been able to get away with that and everyone seems to be really enthusiastic about whatever it is I decide to make next so I'm really thankful for everyone who's been able to, been supporting me throughout my paleo plushies endeavors it's been um, really fun but yeah no I never planned on making ball joint dolls or anything like that but um, my dad gifted me and my partner a, a 3D printer as a like a housewarming gift kind of thing 
when we when I moved up to Scotland and it kind of just this 3D printer it's almost like once you have one you then have all these possibilities open to you and it's like wow I could I could of course print figures and then they gradually got more complicated I was like I could do joints and I can do this and oh I could do a whole ball jointed doll sort of thing and that's so yeah it's just almost having the, the having the tool there has been a driving force for like finding a use for it almost but no it's been brilliant and I really love the 3d printing side of things it's great that's fantastic yeah are, are these ball jointed figures uh, more or less complicated than the plushies or or is that not really an appropriate question because they're so different um I would say it's been more complicated because I have had to learn a lot of new skills in one go because I'd never really done 3D modeling or anything like that before. Right. And so I've had to learn how to 3D model. But the way I do it for the ball joint dolls, I use like software. I use free software called Mesh Mixer and another free software called Sculptress. And they're all based around like it's more sculpting in in 3D rather than... um, Mm-hmm. 3D modeling in the same way that you would do for video games and things like that, where you actually, I don't have to worry about polygons and um, right. all that sort of thing. I've just kind of mush a bit of uh, digital clay around until it's the shape that I want. And <laughs> yes. yeah, so um, I have started to learn like uh, 3D modeling in a more strict way with blender which is more free software um which is great um i used that for the hyena don i used that to like block out the basic shapes and then sculpted onto the um the 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 model that i'd created in blender but it's been making soft toys comes more naturally to me because i've been doing it longer but of course it's more of an intensive process to make a soft toy from start to finish whilst with the 3d modeling you put all the effort in with the initial model and then once you've got that then you can print lots of copies there is a, there is an amount of clean up yes. and painting and all that that you have to do but i think they they're different but i'd say um i find 3d modeling a lot more strenuous than i do mm-hmm. making a soft toy <laughs> No, that that would make sense. Yes, not that we could tell though from the results because they look fantastic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> and 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 again, uh, I've noticed that they, you know, other than the thylacine, the others have been selling out just as quickly. So um, that you obviously have many others who who agree that they are beautifully made things, and that uh, and that people are clamoring for more. Do you oh, have plans for, for more for more um, ball-jointed figures like this? I do want to make some more. It's finding the right balance of... Cause I'm going to be honest, I'm not being diagnosed with ADHD, but I'm pushing for a diagnosis. And I find it very, very hard to like focus on things that I'm not interested in in that moment. Of I have course. a tendency... <laughs> yeah I have a tendency to flip from one project to another and have a lot on the go at once and um, the things like the 3D modeling was something I was really really interested in for quite a short amount of time and I, it's not something that's interesting me at the moment so 
I haven't really thought about it for a while, but I'm sure there'll be something in sure. uh, future, some animal that I'll be like, oh, this would be perfect. I need to, I need to make a model of this, and then I'll get get back into it and make that. But at the moment, I've been, um, uh, well, for quite a while actually, thylacines have been a big interest, and I've been making new soft toys of them, and I've been doing lots of fish as well. Yes, um, but I think that's the the brilliant thing about being able to work for myself and work from home on these projects there's the soft toys and the 3d modeling is that i'm able to um, organize my own day that's in a way that suits me and yes the fact that making soft toys has so many different stages and so many different things in it it always keeps me um keeps my attention from the beginning of the process to the end and then if there's something that I'm like oh I don't feel like doing digital art today I can then do some sewing or cut some things out or like um just or even if I do feel like digital art I then design it design a new plush and it it's very freeing that I can do this all on my on um on my own and yes and make my own schedule it's just been <laughs> it works for me really well and I'm really thankful for everyone mm. who um, supports me by buying my work and just just even sharing and commenting on my stuff and it, it I get a lot of positive feedback from it and um, yeah I really enjoy what I do it's been it's it's really good I'm really lucky <laughs> oh I think it's entirely well deserved and I think we're just as grateful for your making oh, them. thanks <laughs> I get the impression that people um, really, really like the things I make and are always really pleased when I make an animal that they like and have never seen a depiction of as a soft toy before. And I get I get contacted by yes. researchers being like, is there a chance you can make my animal sort of thing? And I'm like, yeah, OK. And they oh, that's wonderful. always really happy to help out. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. That's marvellous. I really do think that is a sort of signal honour. When you have a, a researcher of you know a particular animal actually wanting you to make one, I, I think that's 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 really quite rare. I think I do find that really really flattering, and um, I love it because they they're obviously really enthusiastic about this uh, whatever um, animal whatever species that is there that's their, the subject of their research, and the fact that they would be happy to provide me with like um papers and all the all the research and sometimes behind the scenes kind of information that's um, fantastic just so i can make these really accurate um soft toys and uh there's it's i really love doing that actually and i like i like working with researchers and things because um it, it's great i get to learn a lot in the process yeah which leads quite neatly onto my next question, actually, um, because I, I think it can be easy in general to forget that, that dinosaur toys, even mass-produced ones, are themselves works of paleo art and are no less a significant part of the paleosphere popular culture. And um, I, I, I'm sure that you know that there's been a very promising growth in scientifically informed toys in the major manufacturers in recent years. And at the moment, you, as it were, are the de facto leading market, albeit as an independent artist in the soft toy department. And you occupy 
yeah, just as you've been telling us, you occupy an even more uh, unique um, position almost in that you have uh, the direct sanction, uh, for want of a better, better description, of, uh, of the scientists of their chosen species actually making requests and providing you all the material that you need. But anyway, what I'm trying to ask is, do you think you could foresee a similar trend in more accurate soft toys uh, in the future? Um, the thing is, like, if you look at a lot of soft toy manufacturers as they are now, um, they often get modern animals really, really, really spot on accurate or at least are a really mm. good caricature of the um of the species that they're meant to represent yes and but the same manufacturer if you look at their dinosaurs are completely just awful <laughs> to say the say the least sometimes <laughs> i like honestly you look at them and go oh okay um but i feel like <laughs> Uh, there's some, there's some companies that um, really are trying, um, and that I'll name Hanser as one. Who yes. a lot of their their modern animals are beautifully sculpted and beautifully made, and they're definitely like one of the leading accurate soft toy makers who do it on a professional level, like on a mass market level. I guess is the correct term. Mm-hmm. If you look at soft toy animals as they are now, and they they are often a lot more accurate than they would have been like 30, 40 years ago when they're all sort of teddy bear styles. And um, yes, I wonder if the same will happen with um, paleo, paleo soft toys. I know there's some companies in Japan which have started making more obscure um, species um, and um, yes they've, they've done some really good prehistoric creatures as well um, so I think I think it's one of those things where if there's a market for it they will eventually realize that there is a market for it and start filling it so we'll see but in the meantime it's up to little people yes. to fill in that gap <laughs> yes and as you say I think um uh, we know Japan is is one one of the leading uh, makers of of really beautiful, accurate dinosaur toys. Actually, and uh, if they are starting to make um, accurate soft toys of dinosaurs, then I think that seems to me a promising direction. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I'm trying to think what company it was, but there were some really good. Ashtarkid pterosaur soft toys that I saw a little while back and I think as paleo art becomes modern paleo art becomes like more the norm we're going to move away from the depictions of dinosaurs from from the 80s to yes to like more modern depictions of dinosaurs and other prehistoric creatures and I think that would be really interesting but I, I definitely think there'll be a shift yeah. in that direction well on to my last question then uh you were recently interviewed for a BBC segment, I think. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. I was um, interviewed by uh, BBC Scotland for a segment on their one of their news shows in the evening called The Nine, which is on at nine o'clock in the evening. And it was just right. a small segment. But um, they interviewed me about people who 
pick up hobbies or have more time for hobbies and model making specifically model making during lockdown and sort of how model making companies have seen an uptake in sales or or maybe a downturn in sales depending on on basically are, are people more interested in sort of indulging in their hobbies when they had more time during lockdown and things like that so it was interesting because I was interviewed alongside to uh like a sort of model railway company and one that makes uh uh-huh. 3d printed models for tabletop gaming yeah I felt like it was good I was in good company with my with my soft mod soft toys alongside the these uh, more solid uh, models so that was really fun <laughs> and <laughs> they found me um because the the chap who interviewed me was interested in um the crystal palace dinosaurs and so he found Excellent. me by that he actually he got me to print 3d print one of the crystal palace dinosaurs to and i recorded it and they used the footage as part of the um the interview and then he got it at the oh, end to put on his mantelpiece. So <laughs> that was that was fun. <laughs> well, yeah. great. I think, uh, Bex, whatever direction the world of plushies takes with regard to dinosaurs, it seems to me that you are going to be fondly regarded as both a trailblazer in this field and as a distinctive paleo artist in your own right. Uh, Rebecca Groom, Bex, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, good luck in all things and thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you, Natty, for having me on on um, Loving the Time of Chasmosaurus podcast. I've been really enjoyed the interview and it's been great to be here. So thank you. Thank you. Before I sign off, I wanted to extend one important word of thanks to our backers, or maybe that should be backers. It's Hollands. On Patreon. Backers. Yeah, backers. Aha. Uh, because, thanks to you lovely people, we are now available on Spotify. Fantastic. Yay. Thank you so much. And it also means we have uh, unlimited storage space on Podbean. So uh, we're going to be making podcasts until uh, the sun rises in the west and settles in the east and uh, a new dinosaur age approaches Unlimited or something like that storage space. or at least until one of us crumbles to dust yeah Only if you pick the wrong holy grail well it could happen All to right. anyone <laughs> thank you so much everyone thank you very much for listening until next time bye 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 everybody uh, au revoir thank you for listening to love in the time of chasmosaurs our blog can be found at chasmosaurs.com you can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurus. If you want to give us your support, please leave a review of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have a Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we hope to see you again soon. A shoal of silvery fishes weaves and darts in the warm shadow sea of upper Jurassic northern Europe. Above them looms a family group of ophthalmosaurus, most elegant and streamlined of the fish-like reptiles, or ichthyosaurs. Sunlight shafts through the fine uh, suspension of silt carried from distant river mouths. Sorry.